Hello, you're listening to the Poet in the City podcast, and in episode three, we're going to Germany. Hello and welcome to episode 3. I'm Alia Kassam and this programme is called Contemporary German Voices. Over the next half hour, we'll be introducing you to two of the best German poets creating work today, Dirs Grinbein and Ulrika Almut-Sandig, as well as featuring poetry and commentary from our guests, the UK poet Don Patterson and academic and translator Professor Karen Leder. The podcast is part of a series of specially curated poetry events, also called Contemporary German Voices, which this year saw Poet in the City team up with Torch Knowledge Exchange Fellow Professor Karen Leder. Karen is a prize-winning translator, as well as being Professor of Modern German Literature at New College, Oxford. The Knowledge Exchange programme aims to get some of the best expertise from Oxford, outside of the university walls and out onto the streets. So working together with Karen we came to bring some of Germany's best contemporary poets to UK audiences and we'll be bringing you live readings from some of those electric encounters. As promised, we're taking a look at all things German and coming up, we'll be finding out about literary culture in one of Europe's coolest cities, Berlin. The T.S. Eliot award-winning poet Don Patterson takes on literary legend Rainer Maria Rilke. We'll be looking at the joys and perils of undertaking that linguistic adventure, translation, We'll be doing some myth-busting and checking out if the stereotyped idea of the classic German poet as philosophical, inward-looking and soul-searching really holds sway. And we'll be asking what happens when you take a classic German Grimm's fairy tale and put it to a drumbeat. Ich schreibe dir nur, um dich wissen zu lassen. Es fehlt mir, ah, nichts. Dass ich mein Hamm... You've just been listening to the poetry of Ulrika Almut-Sandig. She's part of a new generation of German poets working in Berlin today, and her work spans poetry, prose volumes, radio plays, and even an album, which she says she produced for lovers of poetry and pop music. We just spoke about taking ideas out onto the streets, and Ulrika has literally done this with her own work. If you thought poetry lives neatly in books, or in the polite circles of poetry readings, then think again. She told us about her unique, democratic and playful way of distributing her poetry around the city of Leipzig when she started the literature projects E-Mail and I-Mail. She told us more about her unique approach to poetry. I-Mail and E-Mail, I started doing this, I think, 2001, because I had been writing poetry then for some time, but I wasn't too interested in publishing it in the normal ways, in in magazines and stuff. And I wasn't too interested either in giving just ordinary readings because I didn't like ordinary readings. So a a friend of mine who is also a singer-songwriter, Marlene Pelny, that is her name, and so we started to just to copy our poems and poems of friends and just to to glue them on the walls and construction fences and lamp posts and 
and it turned out to um, develop just like a magazine would do. I mean, uh, people waited for the next issue to come out and commented just below the poem or on the poem and corrected us. Sometimes we did mistakes and then or wrote something that looked like a mistake and they corrected us. So it was very enthusiastic exchange between the public that we didn't know. It wasn't just I love the idea of poetry pasted anonymously on lampposts and fences and of people collectively creating poems on the streets. Ulrika is an artist who pushes the boundaries for poetry and performance. A performance style isn't pure spoken word and it isn't music. It's something fantastic that lies between. The work she makes veers into film poems, sound art and mini radio plays. Radio plays are popular in Germany and working with the sound engineer, Sebastian Reuter, They've produced mini-sound poems, complete pieces almost like contained plays. When they came to Richmix to give their debut UK performance, they created a new sound art piece especially for the event. It's based on a classic Grimm's fairy tale called Hands in Luck. Sebastian explained more about how the pair created the work and gave the story behind this classic German fairy tale. We usually we, we go to the studio, record the, the text, and... Um while recording it, it gives me ideas like the words, of course, the meaning of the words. And, for example, with uh, Hans in Luck, I don't know if you know the story of Hans im Glück, the fairy tale. Well, it's a, a rather simple story. There's um, this guy who worked for a farmer for seven years, and he, he gets his pay after seven years, and it's a big lump of gold. And he wants to go home to his mother with the gold. And on his way, he realizes it's very heavy. So he's complaining about the weight to someone who comes by with a horse. So the guy with the horse says, well, just give me the gold and you don't have to carry it anymore. You can take my horse. So he's glad to take the horse and um, goes on with the horse. He rides the horse and the horse will just throws him off. So he swears at the horse, He's, he wants to get rid of the horse, and so this guy shows up with a cow and says, well, just give me the horse and get rid of it, and you can have the cow. And if you have a cow, you always have, always have fresh milk, and it's pretty cool to have a cow. So he changes the horse for the cow, and um, he's very happy with the cow. So, and he goes on and then eventually meets someone with a pig. And then in the end, well, the story is in the end he ends up with nothing. And he's very happy because he doesn't have to carry anything and he doesn't have to worry about anything. And so he's a happy guy. So I, I had this story in mind and that is why I chose sounds for the, the drums, um, sounds of feet in, in the forest or feet on the sand as a snare drum, for example, because I always imagined this guy walking through the fields. Hans im Glück Ich schreibe dir nur dich wissen zu lassen. Es fehlt mir ach nichts. Dass ich mein Hand, dass ich mein Arm, dass ich mein Aug. Schau genau hin, es ist alles noch da, seit du nicht mehr da bist. Ach, alles ich mind ein X vorhanden. Mein Stirn, mein Hirn, mein Pech. 
fasse mich neuerdings kurz, u, uh, schreibe dir nur im Sprech der pappweißen Taube vorm Haus, u, uh, ihrem mechanischen, über allen Gipfeln ist ru, ru, ru. Die gesprächigste Taube, Glück statt Art, Elbe, die jedem, wirklich jedem ihrer Berichte eins letzte hoffnungsvolle Silbe anhängt, eins Verschwendung. Ich breche hier ab, kann mein eigenes Wort kaum verstehen, laute Abwesenheit. Abgesehen davon fehlt es mir ach, nichts. Lieber Hans, wie geht es dir? O, A, wo bist du? Ru, 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 ru. Well, Rika now lives and works in Berlin, and I wanted to find out more about this infamously artistic and bohemian city. So I decided to meet with her translator, Professor of Modern German Literature at Oxford, Karen Leder, to get some background to the literary culture in Germany. One of the things that happened after 1989, especially in the middle of Berlin and slightly to the east, there was a fantastic old housing stock that had really been run down in the former East Germany. A lot of places where artists in the GDR, the East Germany, had squatted and lived a quasi-illegal existence. Now, when that was opened up, it became the go-to place for artists and writers in the United Germany because there were cheap, fantastic bits of accommodation, lots of designers, artists opened up amazing little studios and boutiques. Now, I have to say that that's gone a bit now because, uh, of course, this is prime property location in Berlin and it's mostly full of wellness centres, as they're called in German, now and rather trendy, rather expensive shops. But there is still something for that culture, although it's moved further east. And I have to say that a lot of, for example, old breweries, old factories um, have been turned into studios and arts venues. And there is an incredibly vibrant scene there, especially for young poets. Whenever I go to Berlin, there are always about six or seven events that one might want to go to on any evening. Some very experienced, wonderful poets that still do local readings in their bookshops because there's still a very vibrant culture of independent bookshops that put on readings, regular readings. Very often there are arts festivals, even all-night festivals that go on, the long night of poetry, as it's called sometimes, die lange Nacht der Poesie. And so you'll have poetry events all night, and they're often with musicians as well, and people will wander around, there's food, there's drink, and you just drop in, and you discover all kinds of things which you didn't know about. So you go along for one thing, and then discover hundreds of others. There are also lots of small independent publishers in Berlin, and that makes a big difference. Again, you get a very vibrant culture of readings and events and little bookstalls. I think writers do have a different status in Germany, and partly because that comes out of a respect for culture and a respect for writers. So, for example, there are television programmes about literature, regular, weekly slots that get big audiences, and writers still have something of that sort of uh, conscience of the nation. Gunter Grass, for example, was always thought about as the conscience of the nation. So there's something of that, but there's a kind of respect for artistic and intellectual endeavour, um, which is you know, just not quite the same here, actually, I have to say. It's quite a European thing. You probably guessed that our first contemporary German voice is stylistically fun, playful, subversive. 
But underneath that, there is a seriousness and a questioning, often a questioning of language, of the relationship between an I and a you, questions about the slipperiness of the self and of identity. It's something you'll get a taste of now as we take you over to Rich Mix for the following poem, which Ulrika performed on stage alongside her translator, Karen Leader. Vom Flieger aus siehst du tags die smarten Blue Screens der Pools in tausend und einem Garten am Haus. Quadrate überhaupt, je weniger du und ich von Deutschland entfernt sind. Sieh nachts in Blutorange die Laternenalleen jener persisch-kubanischen Wo sind wir? Städte. Da unten leuchten die Highways, hier oben leuchten wir. Die Nacht hebt an, wir kommen voran. Bekommst du dein Kind hier? Wie nennst du es dann? Nenn's Asia, nenn's Almut, nenn's Alpha, lass Omega sein. Wir kommen von irgendwo her, wir schlafen. Wir fliegen nirgendwo hin. From the plane you see the smart blue screens of pools by day. In a thousand and one gardens, at home, all manner of squares. The less distance you and I put between us and Germany. Look. By night, the blood-orange avenues of lights of those Persian, Cuban, where are we? Cities. Down below, the highways shine. Up here, it's us that shine. The night arrives, we're making strides. If it's here you have your child, what will you call it? Call it Asia, call it Almut. Call it Alpha, let's give Omega a miss. We come from somewhere, we sleep, we're en route for nowhere at all. The question about whether a piece of art can remain pure and untouched by history or politics or social conditions has always been a contested one. And when it comes to our poets, it's a question that arises again. The poetry itself stands alone, and the questions and themes that they ask are universal. And having said that, Germany has had a tumultuous recent history, politically and socially. Both our poets, Ulrika and our next contemporary German voice, Dirz Grumbein, were born in the former East Germany. Ulrika in 1979 and Dirz was born in 1962 in Dresden. Both growing up during the Cold War and witnessing the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was curious about the weight of history on Germany's writers. Durst has written a lot of autobiographical essays about being young and about how his particular sensibility for language was uh, sort of forged out of his experiences with his family and also running across the sort of scrap heaps of the former East Germany and the, the landscapes of, the East, of East Germany. And I think, to be honest... 
he'd hate me saying he's an East German poet because he's not. He's really a very profoundly European poet that happens to write in German. But there is something about a poetry forged under an oppressive regime and there is a sense that, that writers very early see themselves as a kind of holder of language or someone who holds on to the truth of language in the face of constant lies. I don't want to say censorship is the mother of metaphor or anything like that, but I will say that it seems to me that very often poets who come from oppressive regimes have a very early and very strong sense of their identity forged out of that context. Durs is one of Germany's most celebrated and acclaimed poets, and as well as numerous volumes of poetry, including the collection Ashes for Breakfast, he is also an essayist and a translator, with a string of literary prizes. We said earlier that we were going to do some myth-busting, and check out whether the classic view of the German writer as inward-looking, philosophical and soul-searching was really true, and so far, Ulrika's poetry seems to have blown that myth apart. Yes, her poetry is serious, but it's also playful. Durs Grundbein is another poet who thwarts that cliché, with poetry that's humorous and is rooted in the reality of the world of the everyday. But there is something philosophical about his approach to poetry. Before reading for an audience at Keats House in London, he gave a beautiful account of the nature of being a poet and of the significance of language. There's one of the maybe hidden secrets of poetry that most of the poets really are poets decided to be a poet much earlier than they wrote their, their first poem. And I don't know what it is. It's not a, a choice of profession. It's a choice of, of a way of being. And with that approach, then you can go into the world and do everything. I mean, so you start with the definition of yourself. I mean, it's, it's not a quite clear definition, but, but you are in yourself. Your innermost soul knows that you should do this now. And you start by choosing your language very carefully, maybe earlier than, than other children in school or so. So you pay attention to, to what people say earlier. So. And this is maybe a, also a romantic heritage. So that, that, because the, the word is not really only a word of a dictionary, it's, it's psyche, it's an expression of psyche. Before hearing Durs read one of his poems called Mimosa, live in front of an audience at Keats House. His translator, Karen Leder, introduces one of Germany's most celebrated poets, alongside his good friend, the Scottish poet Don Patterson. One of the reasons why Don and Durs make such a good pairing, in a way, is that they're both uh, philosophical poets, they're both intellectual poets, they both teach poetry, they both write essays about poetry, and they both translate. And it seems to me that they reach across the cultures in a way and are very distinct poets at the top of their game in their respective cultures. They also have that wonderful, ironic take on the world, not afraid to bring an intellectual concept into their poetry, also a very concrete, a very sensual concept, but they rub it with a bit of irony there in the middle, um, and aren't afraid to take the big words into their poems, like soul, for example. Mimosen Manchmal, spät nachts, kehrt sie wieder, kehrt er wieder, dieser eine Tag Rom, wenn im Zentrum der Glaskugel das Schneegestöber sich legt, deine Finger südwärts gleiten und meine, 
Das Metronom der Stunden setzt aus und wir sind in der ewigen Glyptothek. Noch einmal die Taxifahrt vorbei an den abgenagten Arkaden, an Kapitellen geköpft von der Zeit, Torsi von Sonne gepellt. Dann die Ankunft hinterm Rücken, Klatsch, nasser Najaden, um schließlich einzutauchen in Berninis fantastische Welt. Was es da alles gab, Gazellen in Röcken und hautengen Hosen, Obelisken von Elefanten getragen, Marmor zusammengestückt, barocke Wolkenhimmel, die man hier aus Espressotassen trank. Fliegende Händler verkauften an der Kreuzung bei Rot an den Ampeln Mimosen. Ein Tag nur, der bei Berührung schrumpfte zum Augenblick, ehe wir zwei eng umschlungen in den Hotelspiegel sanken. So Mimosa is one of the poems that come out of Rome. Greenbein moved to Rome quite recently and there have been a couple of collections just excited by the possibilities of Rome. And of course, all the great German poets have been to Rome. Goethe went to Rome. <laughs> One has to go to Rome. What I love about it is that it's a very sensual poem. It's an intimate poem. And yet it draws in the fantastic architecture of Rome into that intense, sensual, very human experience but also with a huge amount of humour. So there are Baroque flights of clouds, but you see them, where do you see them? In the espresso cups. And of course it ends with the street boys um, selling mimosa on, on the streets. And Doors was telling me this is a particular special day in Italy, Women's Day in March. Mimosa is such a beautiful thing. Yellow, very beautiful, very fresh. Also just this amazing smell and so delicate, the mixture between the power of the smell and the delicacy. I think that's a very nice image for the, the kind of power and delicacy of the poem as well. Mimosa. Sometimes at night it comes back, that one day in Rome, when the snowstorm in the centre of the globe abates, your fingers glide south and mine. The metronome of ours stops dead and we're in the eternal glyptotech. Taking the taxi again, past all the crumbling arcades, past capitals truncated by time, torsos flayed by the sun, sneaking in behind the backs of those dripping wet naiads, before plunging at last into Bernini's fantastical world. Take it all in, gazelles in skirts and skin-tight trousers, a patchwork of marble, elephants carrying obelisks. Baroque flights of clouds drunk here in espresso cups. Stopped at the traffic lights, street boys flogging mimosa. That one day shrank as we touched to a single hour and we sank in each other's arms into the hotel mirror. So far we've had Ulrika Almut-Sandig and you've just heard Ders Grünbein as two contemporary German voices. But there's one more poet we wanted to mention, although he's not exactly contemporary. The German-language poet Rainer Maria Rilke is one of the most renowned poets in the world. Even if you haven't read his poetry, you've probably heard a Rilke quote. He's the poet who ended one of his most famous poems with the striking words, You must change your life. Rilke is frequently translated by English-language poets, and his ability to speak to us now makes him a kind of contemporary voice. The British poet Don Patterson, who has also made a translation of Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus, 
talks about what drew him to Rilke. I think people have always been fascinated with this particular myth, but it maybe came of age in a certain sense when people were casting around for, uh, I guess, a kind of secular account of things that had been previously explained in a more kind of religious uh, way. And certainly I think that was one of the reasons that Rilke in particular was, was drawn to the obvious myth. It explained for him certain things about the, you know, the nature of being and the world of, that we inhabit, the world of, of becoming and of passing, you know, and eternal states that religious explanations couldn't do in a satisfactory way anymore. It's a brilliant example of when poetry fills an existential gap, when the old answers don't make sense anymore, and it's poetry that can spiritually, emotionally and intellectually touch us. Before hearing Don read his version of Being, from Wilker's Sonnets to Orpheus, here's Karen Leder with a bit more background to this enigmatic poet. So Rainer Maria Rilke is an Austrian poet at the turn of the century, really. His main work was published end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. He died in 1926. He's, for many, I guess, the image of the archetypal, itinerant, vatic poet who calls on the spirits and channels them into his poetry, a bit like Yeats. His work spans an enormous amount of different styles, in fact, when one looks closely, from his new poems, which were 1907-1908, which were written when he was in Paris and was working as a secretary for Rodin, the sculpture, and he wanted to create thing poems, like sculptures that you could walk around so, so that the language would be like stone, like a surface, shiny and full of movement, and, and that you could get a kind of three-dimensional take on things. So these are very new kind of uh, voice in, in poetry at that time. So his poetry ranges to things like the Duino Elegies, a great sort of philosophical cry to the angels, which began famously with a, a sort of voice appearing to Rilke from the storm, which he just started writing down. Uh, but I th- it's very interesting that for so many contemporary English language poets, he is a kind of touchstone, oh, uh, some something that they come to translate or to version, as Don Patterson has done. And I think he brings to English language poetry a voice which is beyond it, not out of reach of it, but beyond it. He brings something, a kind of attention to the absolute, which is very rare in English poetry. And and that's perhaps why so many poets come back to him again and again and again as a way of approaching something different, which is just outside their language, but that they want to, to, to kind of bring into it. Being... Silent comrade of the distances, know that space dilates with your own breath. Ring out as a bell into the earth from the dark rafters of its own high place. Then watch what feeds in you grow strong again. Learn the transformations through and through. What in your life has most tormented you? If the water's sour, turn it into wine. Our senses cannot fathom this night, so be the meaning of their strange encounter at their crossing, be the radiant centre. And should the world itself forget your name, say this to the still earth, I flow. Say this to the quick stream, I am. Don Patterson and Durs Grinbein are both good friends and they read alongside each other at one of our recent Contemporary German Voices events at Keats House. 
It got me curious about the influence of German writers on our own poets, and it's something I discussed with Karen. Would you say that's a sort of more German preoccupation? Do we see that more in German poetry than in, in UK poetry? That, that sort of more philosophical, mm-hmm. existential sort of outlook... Um, and I'm wondering if that's something that is fair to say and whether Don Patterson is, has that element to his poetry that we could call more European. I think there's a very strong tradition of uh, an intellectual, philosophical, searching aspect of poetry in German. And so I do think of Don Patterson as a very European poet in many ways. Obviously in the work he's translated, in his Machado, The Eyes, also in his Rilke, Orpheus. As we said earlier, it is possible to be philosophical and funny, and Don Patterson doesn't disappoint with this brilliantly absurdist poem called The Power Cut, which he read for an audience at Keats House. It's an existential crisis in a lift, and as Karen points out, it's even a sonnet. What's interesting, I think, is the sense that these are sonnets, you know, they're sonnets that you wouldn't necessarily realise with sonnets because they're so clever, they're so fluid and fluent um, and they're funny and yet they take big, big topics and clothe them with a kind of formal uh, stature but also with this humour and again I think that brings Durs and Don very close and uh, you can really see a kind of kindred spirit in that. Basically my worst nightmare happened to me last year and I got stuck in a lift uh, and not only that, I got stuck in a lift in a power cut in the dark. Uh, and not only that, I got stuck in the world's worst lift, um, which was a lift literally between... Uh, uh, it was just up one floor. It was, it was in a two-storey house. Uh, and it was a guest house uh, in Yorkshire, uh, and just because it was too bloody lazy to take my bag up the stairs. Um, uh, and I found myself having this middle-aged existential crisis. Uh, um, so this is that. Uh, it's called a power cut. This is what we've come to, this damn lift, this blackout, this airlock, this voiceless stop, this empty set, this storm cave, this dead drop, this deaf notch, this dumb waiter, this blind drift, this necker cube, this coal shed, this Swiss bank, this iron lung, this hide, this diving bell, this shooter coma, priest hole, holding cell, this meat locker, this isolation tank, this since I'm too lazy for the stairs in this airless guest house in the dales, so went for this jack screw for the old or lame or spent for this two second trip between two floors, this this way up box to sweat and say my prayers in, this six foot night, this theatre of doors, this. I should say the whole thing lasted about five seconds in total. But it was scary. I had the uh, privilege to look to in, in both directions because I had a little Russian. Russian poetry was a very interesting, also influential thing for me. And on the other hand, English-American. No, I, I have days when I think what... what, what uh, fine poetry Elizabeth Bishop is writing, for instance. And I'm not sure that every, every German poet has this chance to, 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 to understand this. Well, let's say Emily Dickinson and so on. That was Durs Grinbein on the pleasure of poetry in other languages. All our guests in this episode have either had their work translated or done their own versions and translations. Whether it's Durs Grinbein, who's translated writers such as Samuel Beckett and Sarah Kane, to Ulrika Almut Sandig, 
whose work has been transformed into film poems and sound art. Human beings have a need to speak to each other, to connect, to be understood. And finding ways to make sense in another language, sometimes even our own, can be a difficult and perilous undertaking. So here's Karen Leader on translating Ulrika Almut-Sandig and on meeting some of the difficulties of translation with some ingenious creativity. So, for example, in one of her performance sound poems called Hands in Luck, which is a reference to a Grimm's short story, there's a line from Goethe, Über allen Gipfeln ist Ruhe. And that's one of the most famous lines in German poetry, Above all the mountains is peace. But in the sound piece, it's what the doves say, and they go, Ruhe, Ruhe. So the, the ru at the end, peace, becomes the sound of the doves. And so, of course, I couldn't have over all the mountains is peace, ru, ru. And so I spent a long time looking for poems that finished with coo <laughs> in English. But in the end, I ended up with a bit of Hamlet, to thine own self be true, true, true. So, but it's that kind of looking for something in the German, seeing if you can find something that has the same effect, even if you have to shift the sound or shift the image or but something surprising, something that kind of sings in English. As Karen's just shown, translation is an art and a craft, but as well as practical considerations, it also throws up all kinds of unexpected and interesting questions. Can poems ever be left alone, or are they naturally shape-shifting creatures? Is translation really about knowing your own language better? And as Don Patterson suggests... Can translation even be a means of changing your identity, taking on a new voice and saying things that, well, perhaps you couldn't ordinarily say? It does make you think a little differently about the nature of voice and the nature of the text as well. And I think that one thing through doing versions that you realise about the text is that the text is always kind of in flight because it's the original text has its own inspirations, whether it was a version or not, it was influenced by other texts, in Rilke's case, by what he was reading at the time, by the sonnets of Michelangelo's that he was translating, you know, the, the, the myths that he was reading. So you end up with this idea of the text itself always in a kind of flux, and, and what you end up with is really only a snapshot of something that's, that is evolving in time, and you've made your own small contribution to it. And as far as the voice is concerned, I mean, I think a selfish reason for for doing versions is, is to remind yourself that your voice is not your voice, the voice is just one that you choose to take on, and actually there are other voices that might kind of fit you too, or at least lend you, sort of lend you a certain kind of rhetorical bravery, you know, so when you come back to your own poem you could say things you, you wouldn't have dared to, so it's, it's also a good way I think of uh, reminding yourself that you too are in a state of flux in regards to your voice and your personality. To me, coming back to English is always coming home, and there's a great sense of the detours you make in via a foreign language actually bring you home, but home becomes a new place because of the detour, because of the journey into a different language. You see your own language differently. What I like about translation, what I really love about that is that really that's a way to, to really give away a poem to someone and he, he does things with the poem that, that really are far from what I would have ever imagined and in the end the poem comes back to you in a different, in, in a different shape, in a different sound and so that's really what I like about it. That this, so it's kind of slippery of course because it slips off my hands but it always comes back like a boomerang and that's so um also in these in that sense poems can't be trusted of course you can never leave them alone they always find their way back if you do decide to go on that linguistic travel adventure 
do a version of one of your favourite poems or just pick up a book of translations. Then enjoy the journey, wherever it takes you. Thank you for downloading this Poet in the City podcast. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or for more information, go to www.poetinthecity.co.uk.